We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 347 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Traverse 2, Part 2. CBS News special report, A Ride on the Moon, the flight of Apollo 15. Now again from the CBS News space headquarters in New York, correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good morning again. For uh, any of you who tuned in late, the uh, astronauts Scott and Irwin uh, left the Falcon uh, lunar landing module at their base camp on the moon about uh, two hours and 45 minutes ago. And since then, they have uh, driven about three miles uh, south of that uh, base area uh, and have explored a, the foothills of the Apennine Mountains. They found a, uh, uh, an area just what they were looking for and apparently are very pleased with what they found. On the ground, they're very pleased, and so they're not going to continue on another mile down to the site that they thought they would have to go to to get this uh, Apennine front uh, sample. Instead, they've turned back. Instead of going southeast, they're going west and a little bit north, uh, back to a fresh crater that they they think is fresh crater, and a, a crater at least that they want to explore up by Spur Crater, it's called. They're going back to that area now. Since they are just moving again from their first location, from which we had really incredible television pictures, we aren't seeing anything right now. When they're in transit, we can't get television pictures from them. But they'll be back to that other location in a very few moments, and again, that incredible RCA camera will be turned on, and we'll see again what they're up to. The detail was uh, is absolutely superb, as uh, you just saw a moment ago, uh, for the first time we have seen uh, uh, service station men in action on the moon, in effect. They wiped off the windshield. Uh, we saw them actually come up with the, with the, uh, with the uh, a little duster they've got, uh, dusted off the lens of the television camera, uh, cleaned off the uh, LCU, their communications unit, and uh, uh, it, was, it was superb. Incidentally, uh, 
not only we in the United States are seeing this superb coverage, but uh, our CBS uh, news broadcast is being carried live to Europe by Eurovision. We're glad to have uh, our European friends with us. It's also going to the Congo and to parts of South America. Uh, and I know that uh, Wally Shira is on the way to the Congo next week after we get the splashdown of Apollo 15 next uh, Saturday. Uh, they'll be ready to welcome you there. Wally, having seen you on the television broadcast. Well, Walter, I've been over there so many times, I figure I better go down and see what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've been over at, uh, over at an orbit, haven't you, many, many times. We had a, we were talking a little while ago about the sun angle uh, there on the moon, the fact that it changes a half a degree an hour, 10 degrees a day. As the sun rises, uh, the temperature, of course, also goes up uh, proportionally as the sun rises. And it goes up a great deal. The variation of temperatures on the moon all the way from 250 degrees at the time the, the sun is in its zenith, the directly overhead, 90 degrees, to uh, the middle of the lunar night when it gets down to 214 or so degrees. Uh, because there's no atmosphere, no ground, uh, no atmosphere to hold the temperature, uh, and uh, it dissipates uh, quickly and rises rapidly. Right now, with the 29-degree sun angle, the temperature is calculated, we're told, at 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, of course, inside the spacesuits, uh, with the water coolant constantly circulating around them, that uh, temperature is kept inside the suits at a nominal 74, 75 degrees, something of that kind. The... Uh, uh, Experiments are all going uh, exceedingly well on the surface of the moon, and we're also told that they're going well as Al Worden in the command ship Endeavour continues to circle overhead. He's up around 60, 65 miles over the moon, and he's uh, as busy up there as these fellows are on the surface of the moon. And a lot of scientists believe that the information he's going to be bringing back will be uh, of equal importance to that that is obtained from the moon's surface because he's got almost $3 million worth of cameras up there in an entirely new uh, area of the service module, the Simbay it's called, and from that he's photographing the moon like it's never been photographed before, but in a very, very busy schedule. But so far, everything's going well with Al Worden as well in orbit around the moon as uh, these fellows on the moon are doing. Perhaps now we can uh, listen in again to uh, what's happening on the moon's surface as this excellent communication from Dave Scott and Jim Irwin continues. On the previous episode, we left Dave Scott and Jim Irwin on Traverse 2 at Station 6A where they discovered a boulder with some mysterious green matter on it. They chipped off a fragment and bagged it. The green material on this important find would later be identified as part of an original ocean of olivine which surrounded the moon before a crust of anorthosite was formed. Now, heading down slope on the rover once more, Scott and Irwin angled towards Spur Crater and stopped next to the rim of the football field-sized pit. Spur Crater looked promising. It did not present them with the same maneuvering difficulties as their previous stop, so they were freer to soak up the sheer pleasure of discovery. There weren't many big rocks, but there was variety in the small fragments that littered the soil. Scott could almost taste the excitement. As Dave and Jim started exploring the site, 
casting around for the best rock samples to collect, they felt an almost childlike delight as they first set their eyes on new riches. Once again, they came across some fragments of green rock. To Irwin, a man of Irish descent who was born on St. Patrick's Day and had shamrocks tucked away in the lunar module, a green rock was a special find. There was some debate about whether the color was real. Scott thought their gold-plated visors were playing tricks on them, but they picked it up anyway. It looked like a chunk of basalt shot through with tiny holes where gas bubbles once frothed in molten lava, but it couldn't have been basalt. It actually yielded to the pressure of Scott's gloved fingers, which left streaks in its surface. Not until the rock was unpacked in the lunar receiving laboratory would the men see that it truly was green and that it was actually made of tiny spheres of glass. Even among moon rocks, it was a rarity, and in time, the story it would tell of eruptions from the hidden depths of the lunar interior would hold geologists spellbound. Okay, there are two. Just to the, uh, the west of you, Dave, and some that have uh, what we've been calling green material, clearly visible. Uh, see what I mean? Right here? Right here. Yeah, that's just a light. Okay, I'd call it light gray, but we'll check it when we get home. What's definitely different from the, the next rock or the one we just picked up. Yeah. I mean, well, look at this one right here. That's what I'm still talking about. Okay. Sure is. That's awful big, but I think we ought to sample here anyway all, all those little frags. <laughs> I gotta admit, it really looks green to me too, Jim, but I can't believe it's green. Oh, it's a good story. <laughs> Something about green cheese? <laughs> Who'd ever believe it? Visor and 
I was wrong. I was I didn't get the call when I wanted to. That's another one, the same stuff, Jim. Okay, why don't why don't you get a uh, sample? Let me take a picture and you get a sample of soil, okay? Yeah. Why don't you just scoop uh, in between them? Yeah. I think this is a big frag here, but it broke. Yeah. When it hit, all these pieces are roughly the same. Yeah. Not much soil here, really. Not really. Good. Okay, one nine five. Wouldn't you agree with that, Jim? Yeah. They took their samples and turned their attention to a strange white rock perched on top of a gray boulder. It looked like it had been placed on a pedestal to be admired, and as they approached, they strategized about the best way to collect it. Okay, now let's go down and uh, get that unusual one. Get that unusual one. And there's another unusual, look at the little crater here, and the one that's facing us, there's a uh, little white corner to the thing. Okay, Dave, get as many of those as you can, and you might be watching for a place where you think the rake might help you. Yeah, I think we could probably do a rake here, Joe. Okay, sounds like a good place, there, man. Down front of us, I'm sure you can see. <laughs> There's a boulder down in front of us, I'm sure you can see, Joe, which is gray, and it has uh, some very outstanding gray class and white class, and oh boy, it's a beaut, and we're going to get a hold of that one in a minute. Okay, I have my pictures, Dave. Okay, let's see, what do you think the best way to sample it would be? I think apparently, uh, can we break off a piece of the clod underneath it? I guess you could probably lift that top fragment right off. Yeah, let's, let me try. Yeah. Sure can. Scott lifted the sample off its pedestal with the tongs. Then he raised it to his faceplate to inspect his find, which was about the size of his fist. It looked fairly beaten up, and it was covered with dust. But as he grasped it, with his gloved fingers, some of the ancient coating wiped off, and he could see crystals, large, white crystals. And it's uh, a white class, and it's about... Oh, man, I just... Look at that. Look at the glimpse. Uh, I'll see twinning in there. Guess what we just found. Guess what we just found. I think we found what we came for. Crystal and rock, huh? Yes, sir. You better believe it. Yes, sir. Plaid in there. Almost yeah. all plaid. She likes it. As a matter of fact, <laughs> oh boy, I think we might have ourselves uh, something close to uh, an orthosite. Because it's crystal in there. It's just a bunch of just almost all plaid. What a beaut. That is really a beauty. And uh, there's, uh, there's another one down there. Yeah, we'll get some of these. Bag it up. Bag it up. Ah. Beautiful. Hey, let me get some of that claw there. No, let's don't make some. Let's make this a special. What? I'll zip it up. Okay. Make this bag number 196 a special bag. Yes, sir. The first one. 
Both men realized what they had discovered. The rock was almost entirely plagioclass, exposed to light for the first time in untold eons. Its white crystals glinted in the sun like the ones they had seen in the San Gabriels. This was surely a chunk of a northosite, a piece of the primordial crust. After describing the rock in detail, Scott placed it in a special sample bag by itself. Of all the rocks brought back from the moon, this one would be the most famous. To geologists, it would be sample number 15415, but to the world, it would be known by the name bestowed upon it by a reporter covering the mission at the Space Center, the Genesis Rock. In time, probing the treasure with electron beams in their laboratories, the geologist would peg the rock's age at four and a half billion years. If the moon was any older than that, it couldn't be much older. The solar system itself was thought to have formed only 100 million years earlier. Scott couldn't hear the geologist's ecstatic reaction in the back room, but he did not need to. It was not until 15 years after such lunar samples were returned to Earth and after countless papers had been written about the lunar load as well as many other discoveries from lunar exploration that the science community finally reached a consensus on how the moon was probably formed. Its conclusion was that our moon is the daughter of not one but two parents. During the early formation of the Earth, a collision with a Mars-sized object ejected part of the Earth's mantle. This joined with much of the object's residue in orbit round the Earth and the disk of mixed substances accreted to form the Moon. Now Capcom Joe Allen radioed that Irwin's sample bag was about to come loose. Everyone in Mission Control could see that on the big screen, and they worried that all those priceless samples might tumble into Spur Crater. Precious minutes were lost as Scott cinched it up. Don't lose your bag now, Jim. <laughs> oh, boy. The astronauts continued to find excellent samples at Spur Crater, and an excited Dave Scott radioed Houston. Joe, this crater is a gold mine. And there might be diamonds in the next one. Yeah, babe. With less than 15 minutes remaining on the schedule, Scott and Irwin looked hopefully at a boulder that lay perhaps a dozen yards farther along Spurs' rim the only large rock in sight, and therefore the only rock for which the geologists could be sure of its place of origin. Undoubtedly, it had been torn from the floor of Spur Crater. Just then, Allen passed up the word from the back room. Forget the boulder. They warned the astronauts back on the rover. But Scott, continued using the rake to collect a bunch of walnut-sized fragments. Then he eyed the boulder again. He told Irwin to take over the raking. In the meantime, Scott went into high gear. 
A short run along Spurs' rim brought him to his quarry. Working on stolen time, he clicked off Hasselblad pictures of it from every angle. There wasn't time to hammer off a piece, but he spotted a small fragment in the dust that had obviously been knocked loose from the big rock, and he used that as his sample. He hoped the geologist would be able to figure out where it came from by studying the pictures he took. Then Scott turned and ran back to join Irwin in his work. Scott hated to leave. It was a frustration he would feel again and again on the moon. There was never enough time. But over that brief course of ten minutes, the astronauts collected a greater diversity of rocks than any previous mission. Summing up the backroom's enthusiasm over their finds, Joe Allen called it a jackpot. Still, their oxygen supplies were becoming a concern. In addition to Houston very carefully monitoring their time away from the lunar module, the astronauts monitored the depletion of their oxygen by counting down on their wristwatches the period left in their tanks. Fortunately, Dave had brought two wristwatches along. At the end of this second day's EVA, his first one broke. Its crystal popped off after overheating, and the watch became filled with lunar dust. This was because their longer stay on the moon meant they were being subjected to higher temperatures than previous missions. The sun was rising higher in the lunar day. The higher heat soak to which their equipment was subjected was another new challenge. By the end of their third day, they would have to switch the temperature control in their liquid-cooled garments to a lower setting. But everything worked fine, except for the broken watch. It was definitely time to return to the rover and make their way back towards the lunar module. They did stop off a few more times to bag enticing samples, but Scott knew he had to return to the ALSEP and the drill that had caused him such problems on the first EVA. Heading back to the limb, Irwin was glad to be traveling on more level ground with a smoother ride. Up on the mountain, there had been times, driving along the contour of the steep slope, when Irwin was afraid the rover would tip over. Now, pulled away from their explorations by the pressure of time and timeline, he and Scott made a brief stop at the limb, then revisited their ALSEP package, that tiny city of instrumentation sprawled in the lunar dust. Now Scott had to summon more strength from his sore, tired hands to drill into the soil for the so-called deep core sample. While Scott drilled, Irwin dug a trench in the gray dust, took pictures of it, and used a device called a penetrometer to test the bearing strength of the trench walls and bottom. Irwin's test would reveal much about the mechanical properties of the lunar soil. Scott's fingers were already so badly injured that they were beginning to turn black 
and they were sore from cinching up sample bags all morning. Using the drill just made them worse. He had to bring his hands in close to his chest in order to squeeze the drill's trigger, and he could stand only a minute or so of the pressure against his nails before he had to back off and shake his arms against the pain. And to make matters worse, the drill kept getting stuck. In fact, post-flight analysis revealed a design fault. But Scott kept at it. Now one core tube was in. Then he added a second. He could feel the drill meet resistance, then penetrate more easily again. Soon he had drilled the full 10 feet down. It was the deepest lunar core sample ever. Inside were supposedly millions of years worth of lunar history. Now he tried to pull the core out of the ground, but no matter what he tried, it would not come out. Finally, Joe Allen told him to leave it until tomorrow, which really disappointed Scott. Are you working on the last dam there? Yeah. You are one fast worker. Okay, Dave, I take a breather, and I've got one last instruction for you here. Using the drill, we want you to break it loose and then let the drill and stem sit there in the surface, and we'll pull it out later. And just leave the drill on the stem handle away from the sun as long as the uh, loot's full free. Roger, what? Roger, as long as the thread's full, uh, full free from the hole. Okay, Dave, we want the handle away from the sun, and we're ready for you to get back on the rover. Uh, we want uh, to end your tasks here. Okay, we want you on the rover too, please. Let me take a few pictures here and let me walk back. I can get there faster. Get pictures of the uh, drill, will you, Jim? Take go. Hey, just south of the drill. I really need. A, I already did a pan here. Get your trench and get a couple pictures of the drill to show its position. Okay. Okay, Jim, a few pictures, and you can walk back, and Dave, we want you to start on the rover, please. Yeah, Joe, I'm on the way. Okay. Okay, Dave, I think everything 
It's not going to drive too fast, are you? Big move. Okay, I'll meet you back there. Yeah. Fresh dust when you drive fast. Keep it clean. Okay, Joe, you're going back to PM1WB. It had been a long day, and you could hear the exhaustion in Dave Scott's voice as they headed back to the limb with Dave riding on the rover and Jim walking. By the time Scott and Irwin climbed back inside the Falcon, they had been outside for more than seven hours. During Traverse 2, they had driven almost eight miles, but they had been richly rewarded for their hard work. It was a day in the field any geologist would have been proud of. In Dave Scott's mind, the secret of living on the moon came down to one thing, getting out of his suit. He and Irwin would have been miserable if they had been sentenced to three full days inside them. By now, the whole process was routine. First off came the gloves. Dave was relieved once again to be able to massage his swollen hands. Then off with the helmets. And then, one at a time, each man stepped into a white stowage bag and pulled it up over his legs to catch the rain of soot and stripped to his long johns. Piled in the back of the cabin, the suits would dry out from almost nine hours worth of wear. Standing in their long johns, they began their chores, recharging the backpacks with oxygen and water, stowing the rocks they had collected that day, and attending to Falcon's systems. There was another routine that wasn't in the flight plan. Each day, Scott and Irwin paused in their work for a brief chat with their orbiting companion. While Dave and Jim were on the surface of the moon, Al was busy collecting a wealth of scientific data from a series of instruments on board Endeavour. Just one of these instruments observed the effect of solar X-rays striking mineral deposits on the lunar surface. This later helped geologists develop a closer inventory of the distribution of minerals deposits on Earth. Al had also come up with the idea of marking his solo portion of their mission by regularly broadcasting in many different languages the message, Hello Earth, Greetings from Endeavor. It was his way of emphasizing their conviction that what they were undertaking was being done in the name of all mankind, not just the United States. Worden's signal was always broken up until he cleared the mountains, but then there was time to exchange news and pleasantries as Endeavor sped starlike overhead. Scott was glad to hear that Worden and his arsenal of scientific instruments were going like gangbusters, And then, before Endeavor drifted out of range, more mundane matters came up. A dirty and smelly Jim Irwin requested that Al throw down his bar of soap. How's things going up there? Getting lots of good data? 
Yeah, we are too. We're uh, a little over 100 pounds today. Got up this side of the mountain. Got a good look around. Things are going real well. Oh man, it was super, just super. We got some great pictures for you. Yeah, I tell you, I hope you can see these rover tracks because uh, out front of the land here it looks like a freeway. Yeah, I bet it does. Well, you can collect another bunch of rocks tomorrow and bring them home. Okay, make a nice little place for them. Yeah, we'll make place for whatever you bring home. Okay, very good. Yeah, I'll uh, throw my soap down, will ya? My soap. Get something, Jim. I'm going to need my soap. Don't mind if I use it, do you? Well, I haven't had a chance to use it yet, but I might tonight. Finally, it was time to get some rest. As Jim Irwin lay in his hammock awaiting sleep, he thought back. Before the mission, inspired by the prospect of visiting the Lunar Mountains, he had felt a desire to hold a short religious observance on the moon. But when he mentioned the idea to his commander, Scott quickly turned him off. But ever since they had arrived on the moon, Irwin felt a spiritual quality about the place. Seemingly insoluble problems had come up and each time they had been resolved. When he was deploying the ALSEP, he had a problem that had never happened in training. The cord for deploying the central station broke. Irwin prayed for guidance, and immediately he knew the solution was to get down on his hands and knees and pull the cord manually. Then there was the rover's rear steering, which had been out of commission yesterday, and nothing they did could fix it. Inexplicably, when he and Scott came out this morning, it was working. He felt a glow inside him that whatever problem came up, they would solve it. Once again, Irwin took a moment to pray. He gave thanks that everything was going so well. He gave thanks, too, for the discovery of the white rock so remarkably displayed on that pedestal of dust, as if it were being presented to them. Tomorrow would surely hold more discoveries, and before he opened his eyes, Irwin prayed that it might also bring him an opportunity to make his own small spiritual gesture. On the moon, a favorite biblical passage, a verse from Psalms, had drifted through his thoughts like a refrain. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. Irwin hoped that sometime during the next day's activities he would find the right moment to recite it. As he prayed, he sensed that God was near him, even on the moon.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 347 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 15, Traverse 2, Part 2. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on September 24th. If you are new to the podcast, what we're trying to accomplish here is a timeline approach to the exploration of space. I began in ancient times, and now I have reached the year 1971, and I try to cover the most significant space missions of each year, which includes manned and unmanned missions from all the countries in the world. Now, up to this point, that has mainly been the United States and the Soviet Union, but we have covered other countries as well. Something else to be aware of, if you are listening on the main feed of the podcast, you will not see all the episodes. I have the first 175 episodes available on the Archive podcast. To find them, search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you would like a better copy of these archive episodes as they were originally released with all the afterthoughts, They are available for download on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Okay, had a few afterthoughts on this episode. I would say Apollo 15 Traverse 2 was the most significant, geologically speaking, of any EVA on the moon thus far. I wanted to make sure I covered this correctly too. That does concern me some because... I like rocks just as much as the next guy, but I am certainly no geologist. So, I have a little bonus content here on the Station 7 discoveries. Station 7 is the third station on EVA 2. Located along the Apennine Front, it is approximately 3 kilometers east of St. George Crater and 5 kilometers southeast of the Lim best known for the discovery of the 4 to 4.5 billion year old Genesis rock, which was found on the north rim of Spur Crater, Station 7 was, and still is, one of the most important stations from Apollo 15. The site is on the north-facing slope of Hadley Delta, approximately 60 meters above the mare surface. The regional slope is about 10 degrees north, dipping towards the mare surface. Many small craters that have reworked the spur ejecta sprinkle the slopes of spur crater. Rock fragments, ranging from 1 centimeter to 1.5 millimeter, are abundant on the upper slopes of spur crater. The diverse samples collected at Station 7 seem to provide a more or less complete section of up to 20 millimeters below the surface of Hadley Delta. A few small crystalline rocks collected in the rake sample are mare-type basalts. Also, a small proportion of the breccia samples contain mare basalt clasts, probably derived from the south cluster impact area. Two of the most important samples returned were found at this station. The most notable rock collected is sample 15415, often called the Genesis rock, and a orthocyte, which is a part of a small cluster of fragments that are as large as 25 centimeters across. Samples 15425 and 15426, referred to as the green glass beads, 
were collected on the crest of the north rim of Spur Crater, approximately 15 meters northeast of the breccia block. The green glass beads are products of a volcanic pyroclastic eruption of lunar magma and have been invaluable in increasing our understanding of sources for many lunar magmas. That was a NASA clip. I hope that helped out a little bit. When I was listening to the CBS coverage, I came across a pretty funny comment that kind of illustrates Joe Allen's sense of humor. Joe and Dave Scott were discussing the TV reception, and Joe decides to take a shot at Ed Mitchell's ESP experiments that he conducted on Apollo 14 with, uh, without Alan Shepard's knowledge. <laughs> What makes it more interesting is Al was there commenting with Walter Cronkite and Wally Sherall. But uh, after that comment was made, he suddenly falls silent. Here's the clip. Evidently your TV is working okay today, Joe. Is that right? It's beautiful, Dave. Either that or it's another ESP experiment. Okay, a micro-bridger was a millimeter of white glass, and there's a gray glass in there. It's about three millimeters. That looks a little different. Let me go down and get this other one that came up. Yeah, one nine three is the number on the back. Al at ESP experiment, I think it was shot at Ed Mitchell. I wonder what he has to say about that. Did you hear the remark, Al, on the television picture? So good, it was referred to as extrasensory perception rather than electronic. I think it was Ed Mitchell that was practicing that with you, wasn't he? Yes, Al's uh, missing for the moment there in Houston. Al Shepard with us. Ed Mitchell, who was the uh, lunar module pilot, uh, the man on the moon with Al Shepard uh, in the uh, flight of Apollo 14, uh, experimented with extrasensory perception, a matter in which he has been very interested, as well as have some uh, rather deep researchers at Duke University and elsewhere, and working with them, uh, he was uh, trying some experiments from space out there. And, and as you suggest, <laughs> Wally, the uh, crack in the ground there with uh, Capcom Joe Allen, uh, that the pictures were so good, maybe, it was just, maybe they weren't seeing the pictures at all, just extrasensory perception. What do you believe Al was thinking then? <laughs> I think he was probably grinding his teeth, thinking there wasn't supposed to be any of that weird stuff on my mission. <laughs> just a guess. Just a guess. I don't know for sure. Finally, uh, what is up with that drill? I hope you could hear in the clip how hard Scott was breathing and straining and just killing his hands to get that core sample. And after he finally gets the bit deep enough, which is 10 feet, it gets stuck. Do you think that will ever get unstuck? They've only got one EVA left. We'll find out next time. Okay, I want to remind everyone we have the episode 350 Tang Ceremony coming up in a couple episodes. We celebrate episode milestones with the so-called favorite drink of the astronauts, <laughs> Tang. So, if you want to participate, 
procure some tang before episode 350. If you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For over seven and a half years, we have been entirely listener-supported. We're currently experiencing the dog days of summer when contributions typically diminish. So if you would like to contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had a few contributions come in, and I would like to thank Greg G. from Australia, who donated at the Apollo level and earned an alien emoji. Aaron M. from Alabama donated at the Soyuz level. Graham M. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned an alien emoji. Chris D. from California donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Lloyd D. from California donated at the Mercury level. John T. from Washington donated at the Mercury level. And Ben M. donated at the Vostok level. Our Patreon donors have gone back down to 247. We lost two. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Maybe we need an intermediate goal of reaching 250 by episode 350. Can we do it? (laughs) I have my serious doubts. (laughs) But it would be great. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 390 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. You know, as I was sitting here waiting for my turn to speak, I noticed the Lego Saturn V that Mike and the Grands built a few years ago. It sits on a small bookcase where the Grands can inspect it and play with pieces like a little hands-on display station. Now when they come to visit, they almost always have to check on it play with the lunar module and the astronauts a bit, or just rearrange things. Sometimes they even get a little perturbed if something is missing or pieces are not exactly where they left them the last time, as if someone else has been playing with it. I just love listening to them explain the stages to one another and see how well they remember the details from Mike. It just amazes me at how intently they listen and retain some of it. Now, you know, they don't always get it right, but Mike is very patient with them, and it's just adorable. It has definitely been one of their favorite Lego builds. Just a memorable, memorable time. Now, are you ready for the SRH winner for this episode? Remember, you will get the choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the new SRH archive magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Judith Jones. Judith Jones, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com and tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 390 of you who have contributed thus far in 2020. We really appreciate it. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Falling to Earth by Al Worden, Failure's Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Apollo 15 Lunar Surface Journal, Internet Archive, Wikipedia, and CBS News. 
And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 348 posted by Thursday, September 24th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.